Our New Testament reading, we're continuing in John uh, chapter 11, and we're going to be reading verses uh, 27 through 37. We read 27 last week, but just to get us in the right place. And then uh, you'll note, it, I mean, when, you're, when we're reading this, that we have another name for Jesus. And uh, uh, Mary calls him the, the, the teacher. So there's another name. You, you start seeing it everywhere. And then also just the humanity of Jesus uh, in this passage. He was fully man, uh, flesh and blood. He had emotions. He had feelings just like we do. And uh, this brings it out <clears throat> clearly. So here we go. We're in uh, John 11, starting in verse 27. And remember, this was Martha. So Jesus was talking with Martha to begin with. She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here, and he is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. <clears throat> when the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise and quickly go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was, and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? And then in the, uh, the sermon passage is from Hosea. And the verse is chapter 6, but I'm going to read starting... In chapter in uh, verse one, so Hosea chapter four verse six. But we're going to start in chapter, and you'll see, like we just read from, I'm not going to say Habakkuk, I guess, and then we read it again here. And if you remember back when Pastor Butch was preaching, and I believe it was first or second Peter, you see the same thing. And then you look in our day to day, and you see the same thing going on. And uh, like the preacher said in, in uh, uh, well, I can't, there's nothing new under the sun. You just see history repeating itself. So we're, we're going to start in, in verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel. For the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. There is no faithfulness or steadfast love and no knowledge of God in the land. There is swearing, lying, murder, stealing, and committing adultery. They break all bonds 
and bloodshed follows bloodshed. Therefore the land moors, and all who dwell in it languish, and all the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens, and even the fish of the sea are taken away. Yet let no one contend, and let none accuse. For with you is my contention, O priest. You shall stumble by day, but the prophet also shall stumble with you by night, and I will destroy your mother. And here's our verse for the sermon text. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, I reject you from being a priest to me. And since you have forgotten the law of God, I will also forget your children. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Thank you, Mark. Thank you, music team. Thank you, church family, for the joy of uh, singing together. Um, our launching pad text is pretty straightforward, I think. Uh, it's a warning uh, from Hosea chapter 4, verse 6. Uh, remember when we finished up 2 Peter, the last verse, uh, the last words of Peter to us in his last letter to the church was grow, to grow, an admonition to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And here we get the warning from God, straight from God, for uh, what happens if we don't do that. If we don't do that. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. They're destroyed because of a lack of knowledge. And it even affects our children. Since you have forgotten the law of God, I will also forget your children. Could that be a possible explanation for the onslaught of the enemy against our children in this day. So what, what do we do about that? Well, one thing we can do is, is grow in knowledge. We, we, can, we, can, we can pray the prayer of the psalmist. Incline my heart to your word, Lord, please. Please incline my heart. Draw my heart to your word that I might not sin against you. And thus grow in knowledge. Grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord. So let's continue our study. Uh, let's not reject knowledge, especially the knowledge of Jesus. Uh, and today we have uh, three more names, one descriptor of our Lord. And I have much to say today, so let's, uh, I know you love hearing that. And uh, oh, by the way, I got a great, a great announcement. A great announcement of good news at the end of the service, so don't bug out after the table, okay? Right before the benediction, I got, I got some exciting news for you. Okay, so let's pray. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for another Lord's Day morning. Thank you for the joy of being together with your people. May we be a people that love knowledge, the knowledge of you and of your son Jesus, because Jesus himself said, this is eternal life that they may know you, the one true God, and Jesus, whom you've sent. So please, Father, please, I need you desperately. Apart from you, I'm nothing. Apart from you, I cannot teach these people. Apart from you, none of us will grow in knowledge. So please, Father, please, Holy Spirit, for the glory of Jesus, speak to us, teach us, Grow us in knowledge for the sake 
of our own spiritual health, but also for the sake of our children. Please, Father, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so first one, we're at the letter Q now, and I told you that would be a challenge, but I got one, but it's not a name uh, specifically. It's a descriptor, and we see it uh, in Revelation chapter 22, very end of the Bible, Revelation chapter 22. We see it three times, Uh, first verse 7. Uh, Jesus says, and behold, I am coming soon. ESV uses the word, uh, translates the word there, soon. This is one of, one of the very few cases uh, where I don't prefer the ESV. I prefer uh, like the, uh, the Lexham English Bible or the New American Standard Bible or the Holman Christian Standard Bible. Several, several translations, reputable, uh, good translations, translated quickly. I'm coming quickly. And I'll tell you why they, they said that, they translated that way in just a minute. And then we see it again in verse 12. Behold, I'm coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay everyone for what he's done. So there we see from verse 12 that he's talking about his coming at the last judgment because he's bringing judgment with him. He's bringing recompense. He's bringing repayment with him, okay? And then in verse uh, 20, he who testifies to these things, surely I'm coming soon or coming quickly. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. So soon, I don't think, with all due respect to the ESV translators, who I'm very, very thankful for, it's my preaching Bible. It's the Bible I preach from. I think I, I, I like it. I, I love it. I, it's wonderful. So this is not a derogatory comment against the translators, but this is one case where I don't think soon is the best translation. Um, I don't think. I think quickly is better because the Greek word is the word tachys, transliterated T-A-C-H-Y-S, tachys. We get the word tachycardia, a rapid heartbeat, okay? My mom has that. I, we deal with that often, okay? Uh, the Greek word means pertaining to a very brief period of time with focus on the speed of an activity or event. So, when Jesus says he is coming tachys, he's not, I don't believe he's talking about soon as in chronological time. As he, he's saying that when it happens, it will be quick. It will be, it will be sudden. He, he won't stop at some cosmic rest area. It won't happen in stages. There will be no advance warning except for what has already been given in this book, which is basically what? Be ready. Be ready. Like Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, it will be in the twinkling of an eye. You ever timed a twinkling of an eye? No, you can't. It's too quick. It's too quick. Here's how Jesus himself talks about it in Mark chapter 13, verses 32 to 37, but concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey, and when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. 
Stay awake. Doorkeeper had one task. Stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all. What I say to you, disciples, right there with Jesus at that moment, and what I say to all who will read these words, stay awake. Because Jesus is, is quick. It, that's, that's our descriptor, quick. He's, when he comes, it will be quick. It will be suddenly. I think of my neighbor Craig back in the old neighborhood on um, Union Grove Court. Uh, Craig and Brenda lived about four or five houses up from us. On the, we lived at the end of a cul-de-sac, and they were about four or five houses up from us on the left. Uh, we called their estate Bush Gardens because they never trimmed their bushes. Man, you couldn't see their house. Or, man, you could not see their house. Okay? And uh, Craig and I would get in conversations. He was an interesting dude. He was a very interesting dude. And we'd talk about, start talking about Jesus. And he, he, his response, he would say, he said, that, he said, oh, yeah, what, okay, yeah, uh, I'm not a Christian, don't want to be a Christian. But guess what? But when I see Jesus coming, when I see him coming, then I will bow the knee, then I will give my life to Jesus. And I said, Craig, I don't think it's going to work that way. It's not going to work that way. You're not going to have advanced warning. Once he comes, it's here, and the time for decision is over. When he comes, that's it. That's it. Whatever you've done with him at that time will be what will be accounted to you. You you won't be able to do that. Please, you won't be able to do that. So uh, bottom line is Jesus could come at any time. And when that time comes, it's going to be quick. It's going to be quick. Uh, The tribulations that Jesus talked about in his final days on earth before the cross, before going to the cross, have always been happening throughout history. Wars and rumors of wars, earthquakes, famines, persecution of the church, hatred of Christians and Christianity, ridiculing of the Bible and what it teaches, the bloodshed of the martyrs, false Christs and false prophets, abominations, massive tribulation, etc., 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 these have always been happening. Jesus is at the door. His return is what theologians call imminent. Imminent. Doesn't mean next week, doesn't mean next year, doesn't mean next decade, doesn't mean ne- next century. We don't know. But when that day comes, it will be quick. It's coming, it will happen. We may be totally ignorant of its timing, and we are. Anybody that says they know the day that Jesus is coming, run from them quickly. Because that's been tried. We don't know the day. Jesus himself, as a human being, said he didn't know. In his human nature, no one knows the day or the hour, not even the sun. We may be totally ignorant of its timing, and we are, but we are abundantly confident of its certainty. And what should be our response to that certainty? I'll hand the baton to Dr. MacArthur. Here's what he says. The knowledge that Jesus could return at any moment should not lead Christians to a life of idle waiting for his coming. Rather, it should produce diligent, obedient, worshipful service to God 
an urgent proclamation of the gospel to unbelievers. So let's hear 1 Thessalonians 5, 6 today as an exhortation for us. So then, then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. Why? Because the time of our Lord's certain return is unknown, and it will come suddenly. It will come quickly. God's people must live in constant, joyful, discerning, diligent, and persevering readiness. We must live with our armor on and our lamps burning. We must fight the good fight of faith as good soldiers of Christ Jesus, even when others around us seem timid and afraid. We must live before the face of God in the constant consciousness of the coming day of judgment. We must be ready. We must be ready. So I ask you today, are you ready? If Jesus would come in the next hour, would you hear him say, enter into your rest? Or would you hear him say, depart from me? Depart from me. I never knew you. May we take to heart the words of St. Augustine. He who loves the coming of the Lord is not he who affirms that it's far off, nor is it he who says it is near, but rather he who, whether it be far off or near, awaits it with sincere faith, steadfast hope, and fervent love. Isn't that beautiful? May that be our heart. So Jesus is quick. His coming will be quick. Second, moving on to the letter R. Jesus is our Redeemer. He is our Redeemer. In Galatians 3, verse 13, we read this. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by coming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. The word redeem, of course, means to gain possession of something in exchange for a payment. Now I'm going to reveal your age here. How many of you, how many in here today? Probably won't be very many of you, but how many of you in here remember SNH green stamps? Yes, all my old friends. Yes. Did you collect them? Did you do it? Yeah, I love, we loved it. I love, we loved that. That's a, that's a memory of my childhood. Mom would let me stick the stamps in the book. It was so exciting. It was so fun. And I always loved going to the Redemption Center. The Redemption Center. Oh, what an exciting day. We're going to get something free. Okay? It's usually something boring like a can opener or a lamp. Okay? Now, I'm looking at the catalog at the toys and the games and stuff, but we never got that. But mom would let me carry the book in. And we would redeem our book of stamps or several books, whatever it was, uh, for a product. And there would be an exchange, our stamps for a product. In other words, we, we redeemed the stamps for a product. We give the stamps and they give us the product. The, the gifts 
would be held in the back of kind of like a warehouse type building. They would be held back in the back until the stamps were given. The stamps, we, we had to lay our stamp booklet on the counter before the gift was handed over to us. Listen, we were in a very real sense held in the back. We, we were held in bondage to sin and to Satan until Jesus laid down his life, not on a counter, but on the cross for our redemption. Christ's death is the payment that redeems us from the debt we owe to God's law and to God's holiness. The cross was God's divine redemption center where an unbelievable, glorious exchange was made. Jesus' life for our debt of sin. He swapped his perfection for our sinfulness. Our sins were laid upon him. We became clothed in his righteousness. We'll get to that one next week. Righteousness. The Lord our righteousness. What a perfect name. What a perfect title for Reformation Sunday. Jesus bought us with his blood, swapping his life for our forgiveness and our freedom. As Paul said in the Galatians text, Jesus became a curse for us. This involved being utterly and totally forsaken by the Father while on the cross, when he was bearing our sin. That's why we read in the account of Jesus' death, the only time in prayer Jesus referred to God as something other than Father when he cried from the cross, My God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? Why wasn't Father, Father, why have you forsaken me? Because the Father-Son relationship had been severed because of your sin, because of my sin. R.C. Sproul wrote, in taking God's curse upon himself, Jesus satisfied the demands of God's holy justice. He received God's wrath for us, saving us from the wrath that is to come. Jesus took God's wrath. We get God's love. Jesus died. We get life. Jesus was forsaken so we could be forgiven. He is our Redeemer. He is our precious Redeemer. Titus 2.14 says it like this. Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So what's the proof you've been redeemed? Zeal for good works. You are zealous for good works. That's one of the many evidences of being redeemed and becoming a part of that group that Titus 
describes as a people for his own possession. I love that phrase. We are people for God's own possession. I think of the great hymn by Fanny Crosby. Redeemed how I love to proclaim it. Redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Redeemed through His infinite mercy. His child and forever I am. Redeemed and so happy in Jesus. No language my rapture can tell. I know that the light of His presence with me doth continually dwell. Redeemed, redeemed, come on, sing it with me. Redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Redeemed, redeemed, His child and forever I am. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Jesus is our Redeemer. The psalmist hoped in this great event with these words from Psalm 130, verses 7 and 8. O Israel, hope in the Lord. Guess who Israel is? Us. Us, Old Testament and New Testament believers in Jesus. Old Covenant and New Covenant. Spiritual Israel, that's us. Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with Him is plentiful redemption, and He will redeem Israel from all His iniquities. All of them. All of them. Every single one of them. Yes, even that pet one that you've got, that I've got, every single one of them. Redeemed. His child and forever I am. Let us have the beautiful confidence of Job, who said in the midst of all his sorrows and trials, for I know that my Redeemer lives. And at the last, he will stand upon the earth. Why? Because he's coming quickly. (laughs) He will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed. In other words, after I die, after I breathe my last breath, yet in my flesh, my new flesh, my glorified flesh, I shall see God whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. (laughs) Then I love Job's next line. My heart faints within me. He is so overwhelmed by this truth. He can hardly stand it. It's like the psalmist. This is too high. I cannot contain it. I cannot understand it. My heart faints within me that Jesus would pay his life, his blood, for a worm such as me. My heart faints within me. Blessed Redeemer, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Hallelujah. Name number three. Number three. Directly connected to the one we've just done. Ransom. Ransom. Let's read Mark 10, verses 42 to 45. 
And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be a slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. In other words, I'm not telling you to do anything that I haven't already done. You see what's happening here? Jesus has given this commandment, this exhortation to be a servant. Let me t- and he says, but, but guess what? I'm not just lording it over you and telling you to do this while I'm just sitting up here in my ivory tower. No, he says, for even, even the Son of Man, Son of Man, letter S is coming, Son of Man. A lot of misunderstanding about Son of Man, but we'll get there, okay? For even the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom, a ransom for many, for many, not for all, not for everybody. Jesus never taught universal atonement, never, ever. He gave his life a ransom for many. And this is why he's our redeemer. These are directly connected. We were held hostage by our sin. Jesus paid the ransom price that we could not pay to redeem us. These are directly connected. Directly connected. Wayne Grudem, in his systematic theology, makes this connection when he defines redemption like this. Redemption is Christ's saving work viewed as an act of buying back sinners out of their bondage to sin and to Satan through the payment of a ransom. And that payment, of course, was his blood. His life laid down for us. His crucifixion, his death on the cross. Now let's clarify, this is very important. Kind of get into the weeds with me now, okay? Ready to go to the weeds for a couple of minutes, a couple of seconds? Okay, not very long, but we've got to clarify this. Because the ransom analogy doesn't hold up all the way through. As with most analogies with, with Jesus, okay? Jesus is so above everything. Okay, this ransom we gotta, we, we got to be adamant in saying this was not paid to Satan. This was not paid to Satan, even though he's the one who held us in bondage. This ransom was not paid to Satan. Let's make sure we understand that. But also, then the, the, the knee-jerk response is, okay, well, then there's only one of the choices. It's got to be God. Well, no. No, not, also not to God, because it was not God who was holding us captive, captive in the bondage of sin. That was Satan. So the question of to whom the ransom was paid gets kind of tricky. And I'll hand the baton to Dr. Grudem since we, he, I've introduced him and he's defined redemption, uh, redemption for us. Here's what he said. Now hang with me. Kind of a long quote. Here we go. If we ask to whom the ransom was paid, we realize that the human analogy of a ransom payment does not fit the atonement of Christ in every detail. Though we were in bondage to sin and Satan, there was no ransom paid either to sin or to Satan himself, for they did not have power to demand such payment. 
nor was Satan the one whose holiness was offended by sin and who required a penalty to be paid for sin. Let's think that through. Why would Satan want to ransom? He wants to keep us. Not only did he have the power to demand that, not only was he not the one whose holiness was offended, he wouldn't want us freed. He wouldn't offer a deal. He wants to keep humanity in his grip. Why? Because Satan hates a person created in the image of God. Satan hates God. You're created in the image of God. Satan hates humanity. Let's not twiddle our thumbs around that truth. So, the penalty for sin, back to the Grudem quote. Uh, Where should I pick up here? There was no ransom paid either to sin or to Satan himself, for they did not have power to demand such payment. Satan wouldn't want it. Nor was Satan the one whose holiness was offended by sin and who required a penalty to pay for sin. The penalty for sin was paid by Christ and received and accepted by God the Father. But we hesitate to speak of paying a ransom to God the Father because it was not He who held us in bondage, but Satan and our own sins. Therefore, at this point, the idea of a ransom payment cannot be pressed in every detail. It is sufficient to note that a price was paid, i.e. the death of Christ, and the result was that we were redeemed from bondage. And that's where our focus needs to be. In other words, the ransom image or the ransom analogy breaks down at the point of the question, who was it paid to? Bottom line for us, beloved, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. We don't have to answer that question for the transaction of Christ's death for our forgiveness to go into effect. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. The Bible teaches that a payment is required for our sins, right? The wages of sin is death. That's the payment. That's the payment. And Christ paid it for us with his death. And thus we belong to him. We are not our own. We've been bought with a price. That's all that matters. That's the only truth that matters. And that's a very, very good thing. Glory to God. For God shows his love for us in this. That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ redeemed us by becoming a ransom for us. He paid our massive debt of sin with his own sinless life. Are we thankful or what? Let's always remember what Peter taught us when we were studying his first letter in 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning at verse 17. And if you call on him as Father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing 
that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, very expensive things, but perishable, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Hallelujah. Praise his name. Finally, this is a perfect one to end on. We've been reading John 11 all month. Uh, Mark's been doing a great job with that and kind of keeping us up to speed because we've chopped it up. It's better really to read the whole thing, right? John 11, raising of Lazarus. We're all familiar with it. So many lessons in it. So many lessons. Gosh, I've done so many sermons from John 11 in my lifetime. Uh, so much there. But our focus is verses 25 and 26. We read it last week in our New Testament reading. Jesus in this conversation with Martha. You know, Mark's been taking us through it very beautifully. And Jesus said to her, verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. There's our next name, resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Like I said, we've been reading this account all month. Thank you, Mark. And, uh, and I love talking about this chapter. I love preaching on this chapter. I love this event. This is, this is the final sign. There were seven major signs in the book of John pointing to Jesus, the deity of Jesus. This is the final one. This is the exclamation point. This is the one where after this one, Jesus kind of withdrew and hung out with the people that he loved and that loved him. His last big public act, his last public miracle, the seventh of his seven I am statements, I am the resurrection of the life, uh, to end the list, you know the others, I am the bread of life, I am the door, you, you, you know them all, okay? I am the way, the truth, the life, I am, I am, I am. This is the last one, I am the resurrection and the life. And... Uh, we know what the main, the main characters of this story. You got Lazarus. I mean, the guy's having a bad week, right? He was sick in verse 1. Uh, he died in verse 14. And now he's decaying in verse 17. So he's having a bad week, okay? He's stinking. He's rotting. He's, his cor- he's a corpse. He goes from being sick to being a rotting, smelly corpse within the chapter. He's having a bad week. Then you got Lazarus' sisters, Mary and Martha. They call for Jesus in verse 3. They expected Jesus to spare them from suffering in verses 21 and 32. They both said pretty much the same thing. If you'd been here, this wouldn't have happened. How often do we think that way about Jesus? I mean, here's another, there's a whole other sermon right there. There's so many sermons in this chapter. Expecting Jesus to keep us from suffering. That's not the way it works, right? God uses suffering to do what? To make us like Jesus, James 1. Gosh, there's so many rabbit trails here, so many sermons, so many sermons in this chapter. But i got to get to the focus. And there's Jesus, okay, of course. The main character of all main characters, Jesus Christ. Uh, verse 5 says simply he loved them. He loved them. But note this, i got to, again, i got to do a quick mini 
two-minute sermon here. Note in verse 3, it says, So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. He whom you love. And the Greek word there for love is phileo, from which we get Philadelphia, city of brotherly love, love between you know, brothers and sisters. The one whom you have a brotherly love for is sick. And verse 5, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Loved, guess what? You know it. You know where I'm going with this. It's not filio there. It's what? It's agape. It's agape. Jesus loved these people with a supreme, perfect, vast, wide, high, long love that no mind can know or understand. And it said, what's the point? Well, most humans... We see it right here. We see it with our own life, probably. Most humans, even born-again ones, do not fully comprehend the love of Jesus. We just don't. We just don't. It's, it's, our hearts faint within us, right? It's too high. It's too high. I cannot grasp it. We'd be happy with phileo, but it's agape. And that's the way most, where most humans are. Jesus, the one you have a really sweet affection for, he's, he's sick. He's really sick. Now, Jesus didn't just have a sweet affection for him. He agape him. He loved him with an indescribable, perfect, godlike love. God, help us understand this love and help us to be a reflection of it and a conduit of it to others. So, main characters, Lazarus, his sisters, Jesus. Again, so many lessons here. But our main focus is verses 25 and 26. Note, present tense. I am the resurrection and the life. I am, right, I am the resurrection and the life. And the reason why I want to highlight that, let's rewind a couple of verses and note what Martha has just said. Uh, 21, start at 21. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. So first she, she mildly fusses at Jesus for not being there. We call this a mild fuss. Guys, you know what I'm talking about, right? The mild fuss. Okay, we got it. She's mildly fussing at Jesus, okay? If you'd have been here, this wouldn't have happened. And, uh, but now, but verse 23, but even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, now here's the key. I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Okay, so you got the, got the flow here. A mile fuss. Jesus says Lazarus will rise again. And she says, yeah, yeah, I know, I know. In the future. In the future, in the resurrection on the last day. The future resurrection. And the Lord's response, I am the resurrection. 
Now. Now. We're not talking future here. Now. Right now. In this moment. Where I am, there is life. Martha, you don't have to wait for the future. And I'm fixing to give you a flesh and blood illustration of this spiritual truth by restoring life to your brother's rotting, smelly corpse. Beloved, this is why true churches can't be dead. Because Jesus is the resurrection now. True churches, true people of God with a real living connection with the risen King of Kings cannot be dead. Because he is the resurrection and the life. Right now. Now. I love what James Montgomery Boyce says. When Jesus returns physically, we've talked about that, right? It's going to be quick, right? Remember that? Q, remember? Got it? Okay. When Jesus returns physically at the end of this age, there will be a physical resurrection then also. Dead in Christ will rise first. First Thessalonians 4, read about it, okay? There will be a, when Jesus returns physically in the future, there will be a future massive physical resurrection of all those that have died in him. He goes on, at other times, as today, Jesus is present spiritually. So there is a spiritual resurrection rather than a physical one. If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have experienced this resurrection. You were dead in trespasses and sins, but you've been brought to life by Jesus. So, dear friend, if you're here today, still dead in sin. You can experience the spiritual resurrection right now. Why? Because Jesus is spiritually here. We're fixing to dine with him. We're fixing to have a meal with him in the power and, and, and ministry of the Holy Spirit. He's here. He's here. And he is the resurrection and the life now, right now. So you can experience that spiritual resurrection now in the power of Jesus' spiritual presence and the person of the Holy Spirit. Again, there's so much here. Note one more thing real quick. Hang with me now. Hang with me. Note what Jesus says to her to bring this encounter to a close. End of verse 26. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? Not, do you feel better now? Boyce again. According to Jesus, it was not how she felt that was important, but what she believed. Because let's face it, sometimes we feel like, you know what? We feel like, yeah, that. We feel like, but that doesn't change what we believe. 
It was not how she felt that was important, but what she believed. Feelings are deceiving. How many times have we said that in here? Hundreds of times. Millions. You know that's hyperbole, right? Hyperbole, okay. Not going to hold me to account on that, right? Okay. Lots of times. Feelings are deceiving. Moreover, they come and go. On the other hand, faith is an anchor fixed in bedrock. So I ask you this morning the same question Jesus asked Martha. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? Doesn't matter how you feel. Doesn't matter what your opinion is. Doesn't matter. Your feelings have been hurt. Doesn't matter. Do you believe Jesus is who he said he is? Do you believe God, the creator, exists? Do you believe the words of this book? That's what matters. How you feel does not matter. It does not matter. I'm not trying to be mean by saying that. What matters is truth. And what matters is our answer to the question, do you believe the truth of God? About Jesus? About creation? About life? About marriage? About sexuality? About everything? Do you believe that? That's huge. Especially in our day and time. When everything we believe is being attacked. Everything. Every single thing. Do you believe this? And we all know what happens next. Mark will read it next week in our New Testament reading. Jesus said he was the resurrection and the life, right? And then he proved it by resurrecting Lazarus and giving him life. That's amazing, isn't it? That's amazing. How many times did that happen in in the Gospels? Well, a, a lot. I'm the light of the world. Oh, blind man, you can see now. I'm the bread of life. 5,000 need a meal. Here you go. Jesus would say something and then do something to prove what he just said. He's amazing. He's amazing. I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene and wonder, wonder how he could love me, a sinner condemned and unclean. Jesus, the resurrection and the life, came to Bethany to deal with death on a physical level. He came to the world at Christmas, getting there, getting close, right? Woo, Advent right around the corner. Love it. He came to the world to deal with death on a spiritual level. Jesus came to Bethany so that people would see God's glory. Beginning of the chapter, we know it. The sickness is not in the death, but so that the glory of God can be revealed, right? He came to the world for the same reason. The Word became flesh. And we what? Beheld His glory. Glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Lazarus was dead in a tomb, and Jesus gave him physical life. We were dead in our sin, and Jesus gave us spiritual life. 
the resurrection of Lazarus proves that we have a qualified Savior. We do not need a Savior who can just help us. We need a Savior who can resurrect us. We do not need a Savior who helps us when life gets tough. We need a Savior who raises us when life ends. Oh, He helps us when it gets tough. Yeah, but He doesn't stop there. Why? Because He's the resurrection and the life. We have this Savior in Jesus. who is the resurrection and the life. Do you have this life? Have you been resurrected from your death in trespasses and sins? If not, please know this. Today is the day of salvation. Today, right now. Now, He is the resurrection. Now. My final word today is simply this. Who, who is this man? Who is this man? This is Jesus Christ, the awesome Son of God, our Redeemer, who ransomed us from the grip of sin, death, Satan, and hell. The glorious death conqueror who raises people from the dead easier than we raise our teenagers from their sleep. Please know this. There is only one response to someone like this. Submissive, joyful, and unrivaled worship. That's the only choice. Let's pray together. Father, search our hearts and know, help us to know where we stand with Jesus. The only one who can make claims like he makes. The only one who can say and be truthful, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Father, thank you. Oh, thank you doesn't do it justice. But thank you for the, the great joy and the great honor of communing at this table with our Redeemer, the Lord Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.